Hi, welcome to Skip's Corner, where I cover Nashville's baseball history and events and introduce you to players, coaches, and other fans. A few days ago, I posted on Facebook and I think on Instagram and LinkedIn, and also sent out an email to some old timers and some of the old Nashville baseball players to tell me who they would choose for their Nashville baseball Mount Rushmore. You know, there are four presidents on Mount Rushmore. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, I've seen some things where people had posted and where they were asking about a certain subject, who would be your Mount Rushmore, who would be your family Mount Rushmore, who would be your church Mount Rushmore. And I thought, well, Nashville baseball, I know that there have been a lot of conversations over the years about the Nashville baseball top 10, for example. I published the 10 most influential people in Nashville baseball history. And this is a little different than that. This one was a little bit of a more popularity contest. And of course, number one was Larry Schmidow, far and away. I had about 40 people that responded. Not everybody picked four, although I asked them to pick four. It's easy to say, well, I think Larry Schmidow's there and not produce any other names, but that's okay. I had about 40 people, and I thought it was interesting. Number one was Larry Schmidow, and then second was Ken Dugan, the former Lipscomb University baseball coach, and rightfully so. He was in certainly in my top 10. Who was not in my top 10 was Mookie Betts, but then I did this a few years ago. Mookie Betts is very popular in Nashville, as you might expect, with the way that he's been playing, not only with the Boston Red Sox, but now with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Jim Turner was one of the favorite choices, former New York Yankees pitching coach who was born in Antioch. Farrell Owens certainly was chosen for that as well, not in the top four necessarily. But Tim Corbin certainly did. He tied with Junior Gillum, who was from Nashville, that played for the Brooklyn Dodgers, actually displaced Jackie Robinson at second base and became the rookie of the year, then a coach for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Ari Dickey was in that. David Price was chosen. I've got a couple of double choices. Turkey Stearns, Buster Boguski, different ones like that. Wayne Garland was a choice. Mel Brown got a choice. And even some guys who are not necessarily baseball players like Conway Twitty, who had a great influence on Nashville baseball through his purchase of shares of stock in the newly formed Nashville Sounds some years ago. And then some favorites, Chuck Ross and Black Cat Riley, They were great fans, were always around the ballpark. Tim Dillard, George Leonard, Bobby Reason over. Jack Lavender was a great coach in local amateur circles. Don Money was a great coach with the Nashville Sounds. And Jimmy Stewart, who was so instrumental in Babe Ruth baseball as a regional director. Some names that you may not recognize, Shaky Kane, Bubber John, or George Digby. George Digby was a scout who lived in the area, and that's why you see a lot of Boston Red Sox players from Nashville. Steve Balboni, bye-bye Balboni, Doris Armstrong as a coach, Kaka Collars in the Hall of Fame, played one season in Nashville, Ray Dandridge played for the Nashville Eli Johnson, I think one season. Doug Scopel got a vote, and so long has worked for the Nashville Sounds. Prince Fielder, George Schmees, Bob Lennon, Skeeter Barnes, Don Mattingly. It was just a great thing for people to send me their names, Dick's sister. But one that's a favorite of mine is Larry Gilbert. And I want to talk to you a little bit about Larry Gilbert today because to to make all these choices, it comes in eras, doesn't it? I mean, if you were born in 1920 and you went out to the ballpark in 1930, you would have known who Chuck Dressen was or, um, let's see, who else? 
Uh, some of the other players that would have played throughout the 30s. Bill Rada was one. Those were great players back in the 30s. But what happened in late 1930, the club owner was Faye Murray. I think he'd bought the National Vols in about 1930. He was a cattleman. He owned part of the Minneapolis Millers. And on November the 8th, 1938, he, he literally shocked baseball fans, other Southern Association owners, and just everyone else in between throughout minor league baseball announcing that he had convinced Larry Gilbert, the veteran manager of the New Orleans Pelicans, to become the Nashville Vols manager, replacing Chuck Dressen. Nashville Tennessean sports writer Raymond Johnson did not hold back on his fortune-telling ability when he said it should create more excitement among the local baseball bugs, fans, than Orson Welles' Men of Mars playlet did. If you remember that, War of the Worlds, when Orson Welles broadcast that, and everybody thought we were being attacked by UFOs and aliens from outer space. As one ardent fan put it last night, it's too good to be true, he said. What would come to light in days ahead was Murray had made overtures for Larry Gilbert to manage the Vols as early as a year prior, and that was to no avail, as Larry was reluctant to entertain any idea of leaving his hometown. But that did not keep Murray from trying again. Larry Gilbert was revered in the Southern Association because not only his success with the New Orleans Pelicans, everybody loved him. Literally, everybody loved him. And Raymond Johnson explained why it took so long for Murray to come to terms with bringing Gilbert in. In order to retain Gilbert, President Faye Murray said late yesterday, after the deal was completed, it was necessary for him to own a very substantial interest in the ball club. But as it has always been my desire, this is Murray, Faye Murray speaking, to furnish the loyal fans and supporters of the Nashville Baseball Club the best in baseball, I was willing to make any concession to secure Gilbert's services. Well, to accomplish that, it took one more slice out of Murray's bank account. He purchased Jimmy Hamilton's interest in the Nashville Club. Now, Jimmy Hamilton had been a part-time owner, office executive, and on-field manager through the 20s. Murray purchased Hamilton's shares in the Nashville Ball Club and offered it as an incentive to Gilbert. Now, one would think Hamilton would not be elated with losing one-half interest in the ball club, but undoubtedly, Murray made him an attractive offer too, as after all, Hamilton had been with the Vols for 15 years, and before becoming an executive with the club, he was the team's manager 1923 through 1928. Not great success on the field. But it appears he was not unhappy with the transaction at all. I believe he did a great thing in getting Larry Gilbert, he said. To my way of thinking, Gilbert is the only man who could fill dressing shoes. He's popular here and throughout the league. He knows the league and is a great man to handle players, Hamilton was quoted as having said. Now, Nashville Banner sports writer Fred Russell called it a master stroke. And he said, Faye Murray has made a master move. No other person in the world would be as acceptable to the paying public as Larry Gilbert. He is personally popular, a shrewd baseball man, knows the league better than anyone in it, and gets the very best out of his players. Now, his success is easily measured by his managerial one-loss record, including 15 seasons with New Orleans before coming to Nashville, where he stayed for 10 years. He won 2,128 games and lost 1,627 for a 567 average and is the sixth winningest manager of all time. 
Now, I didn't quite say that right, because in those 25 years, that was his record, 2,128, and he lost 1,627. Now, Russell fended off any rumors of friction between Gilbert and New Orleans President Seymour Weiss by asking the head of the club himself, and Weiss explained it to Russell in no uncertain terms. And he said in his column, Larry came to me, and he laid on the table before me the proposition he had from Nashville. He asked me to look it over and then told me that if I felt he should not take it, if I felt he owed it to my associates and me to stick here, that he would turn it down. Now, what kind of a man would I have been to ask him to turn down such an attractive position as he had been offered? Why, if it had meant the destruction of the Pelicans, the loss of our franchise, or things worse, I would have told him just what I did tell him. And it was this, Larry, you must take this offer. And he did. And even Gilbert explained, you may be sure I thought it over a long time. New Orleans is my home, the home of my entire family, 98% of my friends. My association with the new owners of the Pelicans have been perfect. Ideal, he said. I could not have hoped for a more congenial association where I am. But the offer from Nashville was one I could not turn down. I owed it to my family to take it, and Mr. Weiss and his associates would be foolish to even try to come close to the offer. I had to do it. I have a chance to make three times the money I can make here in New Orleans, he said, an assurance I will make twice as much. Nashville is a fine baseball town, and I have known Faye Murray many years. I have no doubt I will get all the help I need to make good, though. Of course, it will probably be expecting too much to have the good luck I have had here with winners. Anyhow, I'll do my best. Well, the Pelicans' boss expressed how his relationship would continue with the new Nashville field boss. And as willing as I will be to put Larry on a spot or use him without pay, I'm frank to say that the next manager of the Pelicans will be the man Larry Gilbert approves of from among the half a dozen or so names I will submit to him. Now, that's a pretty good relationship. Was it a good investment for the Nashville owner? Well, Larry Gilbert took his first team in Nashville, his 1939 team, to the league playoff championship before losing to San Antonio from the Texas League in the Dixie playoffs. The 1940 club, the next year, stood atop Southern Association standings from opening day until the last day of the season, won the league playoffs, then took the Dixie Series championship against the Houston Buffaloes. Now, Murray had to have been elated and expected more championships after the 1939 season and through 1940, but sadly, he died from a heart attack on March the 4th, 1941. And his son, Ted, took over and allowed Gilbert to continue in his capacity a vice president, general manager, and field manager. Now, Larry continued his winning ways with six consecutive titles from 1939 to 1944 with the Vols and a record of 821 wins and 660 losses. He retired from the coaching box after the 1948 season, but he remained in the executive position. Now, Russell gave a glowing testament to both Gilbert and Murray after the 1940 championship season ended when he wrote, the Vols know it's humanly impossible to have a finer pair of bosses than Faye Murray and Larry Gilbert. Their feeling is a natural reaction to fair treatment, to honest dealing, and to kindness. You don't hear those words repeated very often these days. 
And on September the 8th, 1948, in his final game as manager, Gilbert was honored for 25 years as a manager in the Southern Association. But he remained in Nashville as executive vice president into the 1955 season before selling his share of the team and returning to his hometown. In saying goodbye, he sent a letter to Russell expressing affection for Nashville. And Russell, Fred Russell penned this in his column. Our sincere thanks for the many happy days and happy hours we have spent together. I have many good friends here, and we will be back to visit them. Larry Gilbert's success is often measured by his managerial one-loss record. He's the sixth winningest minor league manager of all time. And together with Fred Russell, they're two of the most beloved sports figures in Nashville, and their relationship was more than one might expect between a baseball manager and executive and a sports writer and editor. Larry's influence on local baseball during his tenure included, included scouting area talent. The Larry Gilbert League was established for amateur high school age players in 1945, and it continued into 19. Well, I played at it, if you can believe that, in the 1960s. And his influence spread beyond Middle Tennessee, too. He was appointed by the commissioner of the Southern Association each year to make out the season schedule. And in 1939, he was so beloved from his experiences with the New Orleans Pelicans and being newly named to the Nashville club. He was named coach of the Cartwright team in a National Association game versus the Doubleday team played in Cooperstown, New York, commemorating the 100th year of baseball. And in 1940, with that great season that he had, winning his first game of the season and not falling out of first place the entire year, was named Minor League Manager of the Year by the Sporting News. Now, his success with players, especially those who had previously had problems in the major league, was well known. He sensed what each one had experienced, what his issues were, and the famous manager did not hesitate to take in those players who had been given up on by other managers. Gilbert knew how to handle each case to allow for talented players to play with the best of one's ability. You don't win that many games, 2,128 games, without knowing how to handle players. Now, in his book, I'll Go Quietly, Fred Russell sang the praises of Larry Gilbert once more. It was a book of Russell's selected columns from his previous 15 years of writing. Published in 1944, it included a column labeled Alibi Chart. I think this is great. It tells a little bit about how Larry Gilbert knew what his players felt, what they were going to say. And it was a list which which Gilbert calls his excuses that Gilbert had adhered to in dealing with the foibles of players. Gilbert knew how to interpret each excuse. Number one was from his player, I was looking for a fastball. That was the excuse. That was the alibi. But he had just struck out. Number two, the sun got in my eyes, a player once told him after a dropped fly ball. Number three, it took a bad hop when Gilbert clearly saw that it was a booted grounder. Number four, I didn't think he was going to run. That was while an infielder was holding the ball while the runner scored from third. One was my spike hung. Well, he was thrown out stretching. (laughs) He was stretching a single into a double or a double into a triple. I thought there were two out when he was doubled out on a fly ball. The ball slipped out of my hand. 
Uh, well, you just threw a wild throw. So if the ball slipped out of your hand, obviously it was a wild throw. The catcher tipped my bat. Well, he had taken a third strike, according to Gilbert. And one of them is, them balls this year is deader than ever, he heard from a player who had flied out four times. Two of the globes are out in that light out there when a line drive had gone by him for a triple. And then a great excuse. I've heard these from my little lickers. These bats ain't got no wood in them when a guy had two pop-ups in a row. Or that mound needs building up in front when a pitcher just made a wild pitch. He's pitching right out of that sign in center field when a batter struck out again. And the pitcher balked when a player was caught off first base. And lastly, I got the uniforms mixed when a player had thrown to the wrong base. Well, there are more, Russell writes, but Larry thinks the prize was pulled after a muffed fly ball on a cloudy afternoon. I haven't heard this one before, not from one of my players, and it was a drop of rain got in my eye. Russell underscored Gilbert's strategy of being successful was to emphasize seriousness when it was time for players to be serious and relaxing when it was time to relax. And his mantra was, make winning so pleasant and losing so unpleasant that hustle is automatic. It was about the hustle. When famed bad boy Boots Poffenberger came to Nashville in 1940 and had, a, I don't know, he won 25 games to set a record at the time for wins in the season in the Southern Association. I think uh, Boots Poffenberger liked to drink beer and he liked to gamble a little bit. And I think if he came in, you know, on a night when he wasn't supposed to pitch, he came into the ballpark and may have been a little woozy. Or may sat out in the grandstands a little bit too long making bets with other players and other fans. I think Gilbert overlooked it. That's the kind of a person he was. That's the kind of manager he was. I don't think he put up with a lot of foolishness, but I've heard that he would let Hoffenberger stay out a little late one night, not say anything to him, because he certainly had a great year in 1940. But in 1941, he argued with the umpire about a call third strike, and when the umpire didn't say much to him about changing the call, Poffenberger actually threw the ball at him. And two days later, Gilbert said he'll never wear a Nashville Vols uniform again, so he could be stern as well as putting up with a little bit of nonsense from time to time. Well, that's a little bit of the history of Larry Gilbert. He's in my top 10. He actually is in my top four. If you didn't know the history of Larry Gilbert, you probably wouldn't think about putting him in your top four in your Mount Rushmore. But I have others that I consider great ball players, great managers, great owners, and I'll come back to a little bit more about National Baseball, Mount Rushmore's. I hope you enjoyed this segment. I'm grateful that you would follow along. If you'd like to write to me, you can at 262downright at gmail.com. You can look for me on Facebook or some of the other social media apps, and I'm always grateful, and I hope you'll come back and listen in again another time. Thank you.